Welcome to Animals Today, your home for a serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. According to the Association for Pet Obesity Prevention, an estimated 59% of cats and 54% of dogs in the U.S. are overweight or obese. Now, I know obesity in companion animals is a big problem, but my first impression of these figures is that they seem very high to me. For quite a while now, Peter and I have been wanting to talk about overweight pets on the show, and finally, this is our chance. I want to welcome back Dr. Doug Coons, who is Medical Director of Desert VCA Animal Hospital in Palm Springs, California. Hey, Doug. Hi, Laurie. How are you? I'm great. Doug, what do you think about those figures from the Association for Pet Obesity Prevention? Do they seem accurate to you? You know, Laurie, sadly, they do. Our, our pets... Uh, lead very sedentary lives, and and so often uh, they are overfed and, uh, as a consequence, put on weight that they don't really need. And is this problem increasing in dogs and cats? Yes, it is. You know, it's a two-edged sword, uh, with cats particularly, because we encourage uh, cat owners to keep their their cats in the house. Uh, and out of harm's way of uh, automobiles and other critters that might uh, attack them. Right. Uh, they live a sedentary life, and unless we're very careful in our feeding habits, they they tend to put on weight. But our dogs, too, to a lesser extent, you know, we, we don't uh, generally let our dogs roam the way, you know, maybe our parents did when... 40 or 50 years ago, and so consequently, unless we make a concerted effort to ensure that our dogs get adequate exercise, uh, again, if we're not careful in the the amount of calories that we're feeding, uh, the dogs can put on extra weight that, uh, that they don't really benefit from. Doug, in the office or at our home, how can one tell if, if one's dog or cat is overweight? The very best measurement is not how much a pet weighs, but to put your hand, the flat of your hand over the ribs. And without putting pressure, you should be able to just barely feel the ribs. If you have to press to feel the ribs, they're overweight. Or if you can actually see ribs, then they're underweight. Now, Doug, this may be a very simple question, and you you already gave us some answers to this, but what are the causes of pet obesity? One of the big causes is free feeding. You know, it's very easy just to fill a food dish in the morning yeah. and and not, uh, not measure out a specific portion. And then our pets can munch all day long. And, uh, and then as they lay around in a sedentary environment, they, they get fat. And they're bored, so they munch all day long. Yes, that that as well. So you know, many of our dogs, and I'm I'm looking at, at Teddy right now, who's a Labradoodle, and you know, Teddy Teddy's really a working dog, and yet he lives uh, in our house and a smaller yard, and uh, he needs a job to to keep that weight down. Yeah. Doug, you and I, um, on a previous show, talked about obesity in cats as a cause of diabetes. What other problems does obesity cause in dogs and cats? You know, there are a myriad of them. Type 2 diabetes, which is the same kind of diabetes that 
people get that are overweight that affects our cats. And often it requires insulin. If it's caught very early, sometimes it can be reversed with uh, proper diet. Uh, cats, you know, are true carnivores. And so uh, unlike dogs, uh, they really need a high-protein diet. And by feeding a diet that's particularly high in, in uh, protein and low in carbohydrate, we can often reverse the diabetes without moving to injections of insulin. But some of the other problems in dogs that we see, uh, you know, we see often smaller dogs that are overweight that have chronic cough. And as they deposit fat in their bodies, the, the fat can actually impinge on the, on the trachea and, uh, and cause a, a chronic cough. Oh, interesting. And we find that medicine doesn't really help these pets. Weight loss is usually the only thing that will really resolve that. And that's a very difficult thing to do. Doug, is obesity in dogs and cats associated with heart disease and high blood pressure as it is in people? You know, not generally, because dogs and cats don't form plaque in their arteries the way we do. So they they process things a little bit differently. Uh, the pig is actually the model for atherosclerosis as far as animals go, as well as pet birds can develop atherosclerosis and high blood pressure. But obesity in dogs doesn't usually affect the the heart, unless a dog has congestive heart failure and if they're overweight, it's just one more extra burden on them. Do overweight people tend to have overweight pets? Are you aware of any research <laughs> on that or do you have your own impression, Doug? There's often an association and I'm not the skinniest guy in the world, so I can't say too much. Often, if we're not controlling our own diet very well, we sometimes tend to be indulgent with our pets. And so it's just my impression of 40 years of practice that uh, often the two go hand in hand. Yeah, it must be very... um must be very awkward if you have a very heavy client come in your office who also has a, a heavy dog for you to advise them to cut down on the dog portions or the treats and to exercise them more. That's a challenge. Okay. A challenge, especially, you know, in our practice, we see a lot of, of geriatric pets who are owned by older folks, and often they have arthritis uh, themselves and, and mobility issues. And it's really hard to say, you know, you need to take your dog around the block an extra time or two because really they struggle to do that themselves. Yeah. So speaking of addressing the problem of obesity, what are the best and safest ways for dogs and cats to lose weight? You know, the very best way to do it is with portion control, number one. So feed uh, an amount of food that's measured with a measuring cup so that you know exactly how many calories your dog or cat is getting every day. Also, increasing activity because the thing that happens if we just cut calories, often the body's response to that is, oh, I'm in starvation mode, so I better slow my metabolism. Right. And so we need to increase that exercise level uh, at the same time. And with a dog, it's a matter of walking or playing. Sometimes it's it's using something like a Kong toy that you put the food in. 
so that the dog has to work to get its food, uh, hiding food uh, around the house instead of just having a bowl full of food sometimes is a is a good that uh, just promotes better activity in in a dog with a cat it's a little more problematic because you know you not too many cats go out jogging with their owners it's more looking at play toys that you can keep the your kitty active right uh the laser mice uh, work really well to get a cat to chase it and, uh, you know it's a lot of fun and relaxing a great interaction with your pet to uh you know to carry on an activity like that any final words of advice there's an awfully lot of hype out there associated with diet and you have to kind of weed through the hype and the marketing mm. to know really what you should feed you know cats truly are carnivores and they need an appropriate diet dogs are omnivores and so uh Looking at calorie density in the diet is important. There are diets that have a lower caloric intensity, but it really doesn't matter so much whether they're on an all-meat diet uh, versus if there's grain in the diet. So it's just a matter of calories, just the same way as it is with us. Veterinarian Dr. Doug Coons, thank you very much. Oh, you're welcome, Lori. Hi, it's Dr. Lori Kirshner, host of Animals Today Radio, and I'd like to invite you to join me each week right here for the latest animal news from around the globe. From animals in the wild, to animals on farms and in agriculture, to our beloved dogs and cats, Animals Today tackles the important issues about their welfare and rights while promoting compassion and respect for all living creatures. And yes, Animals Today is your home for serious talk about animals, but there's big doses of fun and adventure for everyone. If you want to know what you can do to help tigers in the wild, or whether your family should adopt a tortoise, or why you should avoid buying puppies from pet stores, you will love Animals Today. So make sure to join us on this station each week. Visit us at animalstodayradio.com, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, and join the discussion on Facebook. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to Animals Today. If you're a cat or dog guardian, hopefully your animal has identification tags on their body and is microchipped. Many people think ID tags are enough if your companion animal gets lost or escapes from your home, but it's really not. I mean, what if the collar falls off of him or her, or someone purposely or accidentally removes their collar and tags? Then what? Having both identification tags and microchipping your pet is the best thing you can do to ensure in the unlikely event you are separated from your animal that he or she will be successfully reunited with you and your family. Now, in a minute, I'm going to tell you a little story to emphasize this point that microchipping your animal is needed in addition to identification tags. But first, what is a microchip? Microchips are small. They're about the size of a grain of rice. A hermetically sealed glass capsule keeps moisture out and contains a chip, antenna, and a capacitor. Now, the microchip is inserted into the loose skin of your dog's shoulder with a large needle. Now, this may sound painful. It really isn't. The dogs don't even flinch when it's inserted, so it doesn't even require sedation. A very interesting little fact here. In 1985, Dr. 
Hannes Stoddard invented the microchip-based pet recovery system and formed American Veterinary Identification Devices, AVID, A-V-I-D. AVID's pioneering work in the field of radio frequency identification has been globally recognized by the award of 37 patents. AVID saves pets' lives every day by reuniting thousands of lost animals with their families. A few years back in Indio, California, a stray or, or lost dog was picked up and delivered to the Animal Care Center of Indio Animal Shelter. So that's the, the animal shelter in Indio, California. Although the shelter's usual protocol, like most shelters in the country, was to perform a scan for a microchip upon intake to help determine who, quote, owns this dog. Their scanning device had been broken for a while and dogs simply were not getting scanned. Now, we learned about this serious and unfortunate breach of standard protocol in a rather roundabout fashion. A few times a year, my friend Catherine would, on her own, arrange for anywhere from five to ten dogs to be transported from this disgraceful shelter in Indio, which had a very high kill rate, to a Northern California shelter, which was highly successful at getting their dogs into loving homes. Now, after making all the transfer arrangements, Catherine would pack up her own vehicle and escort the dogs to the safety of the northern shelter. The dog in question, upon entering the northern shelter, was scanned and found to have a microchip, which provided enough information to locate the dog's owner, who proved to be a resident of the town of Indio. Even though the dog had no ID tags, being microchip made it possible to find the owner. Now, this man truly loved his dog and was terribly upset when he lost him. He immediately jumped into his car, drove 500 miles to reclaim his dog and reunite him with the rest of his family. So except for the unnecessary thousand miles of driving, the the stress the dog experienced and the expense incurred by the owner, this fiasco ended happily. Nevertheless, think how easily it could have been completely avoided if the Indio shelter only had a functioning scanner and used it. This dog was lucky to get out of the Indio shelter and to get scanned, even if 500 miles away. But we'll never really know how many lost and stray dogs picked up by the city of Indio's animal control during the time the shelter was not properly scanning were unnecessarily killed instead of being reunited with their families. So very important, number one, make sure your dog and cat is microchipped. Number two, keep your microchip registry information current. The shelter where you adopted the dog or cat or a veterinarian can assist you in locating the registry for the chip. And number three, don't forget all companion animals should also be wearing current identification tags. And you are listening to Animals Today, your home for series talk about animals. Join us each week for animal news from around the world and visit us at animalstodayradio.com. I want to remind my listeners how important it is to plan for the care of your animals in case you die before them. And I want to tell you a little story related to this. Several years ago, when I was single and living in a condominium in Palm Springs, I had an elderly neighbor who lived across the way who had a dog, Chloe. Chloe was an eight-year-old white terrier mix, and my neighbor just loved this dog. Now, sadly, after an illness, this woman passed away, and she never made arrangements for someone to care for Chloe after she died. Now, her children traveled from the other side of the country to bury their mother, but 
they had no interest in taking or adopting Chloe. So Chloe ended up in a shelter where, as you know, tragically, many unwanted dogs are euthanized. This was clearly the last thing my neighbor would have wanted to happen to Chloe. Now, fortunately, because of my good working relationship with the shelter personnel, they agreed not to euthanize Chloe and to hold her until I could find a loving forever home. And fortunately, this did happen. Chloe lived out her senior years, not only with a wonderful couple, but with their shepherd mix, who she adored. And you helped place Chloe, didn't you? Yes, I did. And your friend who passed away, she didn't tell her children what she would want to happen to Chloe. So there was really chaos, wasn't there? There was chaos. Okay, so there's the big message. You have to plan, but what really should you do? And you spoke with Francis Carlyle, a legal expert about this, a, a few months ago, didn't you? Yes, Francis is a New York attorney specializing in trust and estate planning, and she shared her experiences with us in the steps all dog guardians should take when preparing their will. And the first is that you need to prepare something and you need to have a lawyer who's experienced in this. She explained that many lawyers, they did not learn this in law school and they're just not up to what they uh, could do or should do. So make sure you uh, speak with someone who's done this before, which is not to say that you necessarily need a will if you were going to communicate your wishes to trustworthy friends or family and even get it in, in writing, but just uh, make sure you take some steps. So so people know what you want. But Peter, you need an agreement from your friends or family. A lot of times friends or family don't really want that responsibility after they're gone. So just don't lay it on them. A further step you could take is to create a pet trust, right? Right. So you can't leave property or money directly to your companion animals. They're not allowed to receive that, but you can create a legal structure, a trust uh, that you can fund with money and then designate trustees to care for your animals when you're gone with your specific instructions. And it's important to review your arrangements each year to confirm that the caregivers and trustees you've chosen are still willing and able to fulfill these duties. And we do that yearly with our people too, don't we? Right. Which reminds me of uh, Leona Helmsley. Yes, Leona Helmsley and her dog Trouble. Trouble. So Trouble was her Maltese dog, and she left $12 million in the trust fund for Trouble. Right, Peter? But later, the judge lowered the inheritance to $2 million. And listen, after receiving numerous death and kidnapping threats, Trouble retired to Florida. And she died at the age of 12 in 2011. But she had full-time security and received round-the-clock, luxurious care from the general manager of the Helmsley Sandcastle Hotel in Sarasota. So that's probably the richest inheritance by any animal. I do believe so. For the past quarter century, International Society for Animal Rights has fought the battle against dog and cat overpopulation. Its programs include reducing income taxes by allowing a deduction for spay and neuter expenses, preventing animals adopted from shelters from reproducing, and requiring the mandatory identification of dogs and cats to prevent dumping the unwanted. For a list of all ISAR overpopulation programs, please see their website at www.isaronline.org. Welcome back. I now want to welcome back to the show Kate Kelly. Uh, Kate Kelly is a renowned historian, author, and lecturer whose books, articles, and speeches celebrate the American cultural experience. 
And I want to encourage you to visit her at americacomesalive.com. Also follow her on Facebook where she frequently posts her articles and they are always a good read and certainly a great diversion from the political nonsense that seems to be populating my feed, right? So Kate's recent article is titled, First Elephants Brought to the United States. And Lori and I thought it would be really interesting to hear about the early history of elephants in North America, because finally, as a society, we are coming to understand how cruel it is to rip their families apart and to force them to travel and perform or to be confined. So not surprisingly, elephants were first seen as revenue sources from the beginning. Welcome, Kate. Thank you very much, and thank you for the kind words. I agree. It's nice to focus on something that doesn't have to do with politics. (laughs) Okay, so how does the story of the first elephants in the U.S. begin? Well, I think the important thing to think about is the fact that before television or still cameras or anything, there was no way for people to know that animals like this existed. So this was truly like for us having a dinosaur come back to life or something really shocking. And what happened was, as these ship captains who were traveling the world to find things to bring back to the United States would bring those things back to trade, one or two of them decided it would be a good idea to load up an elephant. Now, the first elephant was brought in, they loaded it up in 1795. It was supposedly a two-year-old elephant, so it was a little bit smaller than a regular elephant. But the ship captain, with absolutely no credentials and no idea of what to feed this animal, puts it on the ship thinking, well, I hope we have safe passage across the ocean because I'm taking this home. To, to see what I can do, you know, what, what can I sell it for? So those were the circumstances under which the elephants came with no knowledge. And, of course, the, the shipboard at that time would have been very small and, you know, no place set up for, for a wild animal at all. And it must have been truly horrifying. And the ship captain brought it over to find out what he could, what he could get for it, which is exactly what he did. Hmm. And where did this elephant come from? It was an Indian elephant, so he was coming back and forth with spices and that sort of thing. And he was part of a a shipping family in Salem, Massachusetts, and one of a couple of brothers and a father. And so it was known as the Crown and Shield elephant. The family name was Crown and Shield. So he comes back in 1796 and first shows him in 1796 in Salem, Massachusetts, and then from there, the historians who have tracked this track the elephant not through news stories but through advertisements. Like, and of course, in that case, they probably missed a good number of places the elephant stopped. But basically, the elephant did get sold pretty quickly after having arrived in the United States, and we lose track of the crown and shield elephant as to exactly where it went and what happened to it. But we do know that there were a good number of years that it was toured and shown and people paid to see it. And and from that standpoint, it was certainly educational because people would have no idea that something like this in the world existed. So it was truly an exotic animal. Um, but again, it, it just indicates how awful, I mean, who knew what the elephant ate, you know, what, how they treated it, you know, it, it 
in those days it wasn't walking on asphalt, which is good, but, but it, you know, it, it basically, there was no way to convey it unless they were putting it back on a ship to go a little bit farther. So the elephant and, and trainer walked with it every place, and it must have truly been a miserable life. Yeah. You wrote that George Washington added a little data point, uh, but do we have any written accounts of what someone might have thought seeing an elephant for the first time? Has any of that survived? You know, that is a really interesting question, and I don't at this point. What I do find is after I write these posts, I start finding more, and I may indeed eventually amend it. But at this point, I don't have any diary type of entries that anybody has recorded at that time. So, so the next elephant that we have comes eight years later, which is 1804, and this elephant is brought into the port of, of New York, and we have more documentations on Bet simply because Bet stayed with the same owner. Uh, the owner was a farmer who lived up in Somers, New York, and he, his parents had been farmers, and so he was familiar with the life and realized, wow, there's not much way to get ahead here because we're so dependent on the weather, and I can be a farmer forever, but not really go anyplace. So he started investing in different businesses. He was a part owner in a sloop. He was part owner in a, a toll road and some different things. And so when he had taken some of his cattle on the sloop down to New York to sell it at the slaughterhouse, and there was a big slaughter, imagine this, at the foot of New York, at the foot of Manhattan Island at that time was a slaughter yeah. uh, pen and, and house. And the business was usually conducted in a bar. And so he was over at the Boar's Head Tavern and um, had seen the elephant and offered to buy it from whoever owned it at that time. So he owned it and he owned that elephant for eight years. He had taken it back to Somers on the sloop and then walking it over to the farm. And, and some people speculate, again, even with Hakaliah Bailey, um, it, there's speculation as to why he bought it. Some people say it was because he saw it as like an ox-like animal that could be used for, as a draft animal on the farm. But most people kind of think he, he saw the potential in it. He certainly was beginning to realize that as people stopped him on the road from the Hudson River to Somers, that there was a lot of interest. So my suspicion is he had an idea pretty early on that he was going to travel and charge. And, and what he did was, after the people of Somers had, had paid to see it, he thought, well, I better move on to the next community. So he started out small, just moving from, you know, Dutchess County, you know, finishing up in, in Westchester and then moving on to Dutchess County and charging there. He, he had a whole system where he would only travel at night, which in those days actually must have been pretty scary. Yeah. He traveled at night and would then arrive in a community, rent a barn from somebody local, and then he would put out flyers and advertisements indicating that people could pay 25 cents to come and see this elephant. And so he just traveled, you know, a lot. The He was also keeping his other businesses going, so he actually sold parts of Bet to a couple of his neighbors, and they would tour her some nights, meaning that they would keep the income at that time so that he could keep his other businesses going. But Bet met her end in 1816. He had taken her up to um, Maine to show her around there, and they'd stopped in, they, they went up by boat, and they'd stopped in four or five different communities in Maine, and they had finished 
uh, an appearance at Al- in Alfred, Maine, and as they were leaving town, they were confronted by a local farmer who who shot Bet and oh. and killed her. And the sense was that the man was upset about the fact that people who had worked hard for their money were wasting their money paying to see an elephant. Uh, some of the locals just say the guy was generally deranged. Either way, it was like a tremendous sadness for Beth, who probably didn't have a very good life, but at least she was still living. And, you know, and Hakaliah was, you know, did what he could to make some money on showing off the skeleton and carcass, but he eventually sold the skeleton and carcass to something called the American Museum in Manhattan, which eventually was owned by P.T. Barnum. And so so her skeleton was on display for a good long time, but the Hakaliah continued to add to his menagerie and added a lot of different exotic animals, including more elephants. And because of his success, that area around Somers, New York, kind of became the menagerie capital of the world because they were all seeing how it worked and they were buying everything from rhinoceroses to monkeys to parrots and you know you just think about wow this they just knew nothing about animal care or what to do and it was you know sort of the beginning of of a bad business in that sense but on the other hand it did show america and Americans, what these animals were like, and and you know we began to learn more from that. Yes, that's right. Like it or not, it's part of our history, and uh, it seems as if we're finally starting to come to our senses. Totally. So, no, it it is it is truly shocking, and when you think about our long history of having these animals here, and the article or the guest you had last week talking about the zoos where the elephants are are in worse condition. I had no idea that some of those smaller zoos had elephants. I thought they had most of the elephants restricted to bigger zoos. I mean, I know the one in Los Angeles is pretty well taken. I mean, I think the keepers are really good with them. Whether or not you want a captive elephant is another subject, but they do a pretty good job under the circumstances. But some of those little zoos, that's really difficult. Well, that's Kate Kelly. The website is America Comes Alive. I encourage you to follow her, one of our favorite guests here on Animals Today. Kate, thank you so much. Thank you, Peter. I've enjoyed talking to you. More with Animals Today after the break. back to animals today august 20th is the 25th commemoration of international homeless animals day and with us to describe what this is is susan dapsis president of international society for animal rights welcome susan hello Lori. thank you for having me susan thank you for coming on and speaking about international homeless animals day as you know our organization advancing the interests of animals has conducted three events since 2010 and each one has been a very successful community gathering so i want to thank you for inspiring us but let's begin with your organization international society for animal rights and we also refer to it as isar What is ISAR and how did it get started? ISAR was chartered in the District of Columbia over a half century ago in 1959. ISAR is one of the oldest nonprofit 
animal protection organizations in the United States. Helen Jones, the late Helen Jones, was the founder of ISCR. She was only one of a few back in the day that even had a concern or knew animals needed rights, that rights were to be had for animals. So decades ago, when ISAR was founded, the idea that animals had rights was quite controversial, wasn't it? It was. There was a very few people. Um, Helen, the late Helen Jones was one of the pioneers. She brought about um, educational programs, used legislation, other vehicles to, to get the word out there about all kinds of animal abuse, whether it be circuses, zoos, factory farming, pet overpopulation. So as the decades have gone by, ISAR has grown to focus its activities on five main areas. And I want to briefly touch on all of them and then speak about International Homeless Animals Day a little more in depth. Is that okay? That's fine. So first, Susan, dog and cat overpopulation. Describe what ISAR is doing there. ISAR is shedding light on the importance of spaying and neutering to alleviate the suffering of countless annual deaths of dogs and cats each year because of the oversupply of dogs and cats. Then we have education. This has been part of the mission since the early days, right? Oh, it has. It has been. We have humane education programs for children, educational programs for adults. We offer public service announcements a variety of uh, material on our website that addresses the issue of dog and cat overpopulation. And animal law is another large part of ISAR's mission. What does ISAR do in the law to promote animal welfare? Well, ISAR has available, thanks to the chairman of our board, Professor Henry Mark Holzer, model legislation, model statutes, monographs that the public or an organization can take right off our website and they can actually go right to the the legislator, whether it be local legislation, the federal, the state level, and try to get this legislation, whatever piece they choose, to be enacted into law that would help the dog and cat overpopulation in their state. That's fantastic. Susan, you have a relatively new program whereby you use billboards to provide messages about dog and cat overpopulation and the importance of fixing our pets. Briefly tell us about that. We have billboards up in almost every state now. Um, We have them been working internationally. The importance is people see these billboards and they think about All our billboards, no matter what the graphic is, all say spay-neuter. We've been very fortunate that billboard companies have worked with us so that we do receive a not-for-profit posting fee, which makes it easy for us to go through the United States and back again posting our spay-neuter message, hoping somebody will see this and knowing that people are seeing this and listening. And finally, International Homeless Animals Day, a yearly event which is coming up very soon. Susan, what exactly is International Homeless Animals Day? It's a day for everybody worldwide, organizations, animal protection, animal rights organizations, animal welfare, animal protection organizations, uh, animal-friendly businesses, veterinarians, people in the community to get together and as one collective voice, shout out the spay-neuter message. 
And this is done through low-cost spay-neuter clinic speeches given by caring personnel. Veterinarians speak about the importance, the health importance of having your pet spayed or neutered. Shelter workers talk about their experiences when they have to euthanize. And it's a very sad job for them. And they talk about having to euthanize because nobody wants these animals. So it's a day to shed light on dog and cat overpopulation to a worldwide audience. How and when did this get started? This was started 24 years ago, this August 20th. It's always held on the third Saturday in August. will be our 25th year. Wow. It has been celebrated in 50 countries, six continents throughout the United States. This is over the period of 24 years. So, Susan, I can attend a local event or organize my own event in my community, right? That is correct. All the information about International Homeless Animal Day is on our website, which is isaronline.org, and everything is there. We will send you a packet to help you, guide you through your event if you wish to hold one, provide posters, provide proclamations that proclaim the day, August 20th, as International Homeless Animals Day that mayors and governors can sign. And if you don't feel you have the time or the resource to hold an event yourself, and they can be very simple. It can be a microchip clinic. It can be a low-cost spay-neuter clinic. It can be an open house to showcase the animals you have for adoption. Um, it can be a fundraising event as well. People like candles. They hold vigils. It's a very beautiful day. Yeah, that's the really interesting thing about International Homeless Animals Day. It really can be whatever the organizers want it to be. And Susan, this truly became an international project. I mean, you got so many participants in scores of countries around the world coming together on the same day to help animals. It's really quite an accomplishment. And as I mentioned before, my organization conducted three of these events in the past few years, each one a little different. And everyone who has attended said that they were inspired and it gave them energy and optimism to continue in their work to help dogs and cats. And even though dog and cat overpopulation continues to be a difficult problem, these events tend to be uplifting and positive, aren't they? They are. We hear from so many people that they are re-energized and they're going to keep going. They're going to keep fighting. It, It is a very positive day. So for listeners who want to attend an event or even organize one in their area, they go to your website. Say that website one more time, please. It's isaronline.org. If you want, you can go to domestic events, see if there's an event being held in your area and attend one there. Or if you'd like, right there below that, you can just click on send me a packet. I want to hold my own vigil. Fantastic. Susan Dapsis with International Society for Animal Rights. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me, Lori. And this is Dr. Lori Kirshner encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals.